0: Again, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Uh, Welcome. I invite you to turn in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 9. We'll look at the whole chapter today, and it illustrates one of the truths that we've just sung, namely that Jesus is the one who gives sight to the blind. So turn uh, in God's word to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We will be reading selectively from 1 through 17, and then verses 35 through 41. Let's hear God's word together. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, who do you, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Okay, jump forward to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that left to our own devices, apart from your Son and Spirit, We are spiritually blind. We are unable to distinguish between truth and error. We are unresponsive to your truth. And so we ask today in the name of our faithful Savior Jesus Christ that you, O God, would open our eyes to behold glorious things in your word. Grant us to see the truth about your Son Jesus Christ. Grant us to, to see the truth about ourselves and our need and grant us to cast ourselves without reserve on the Savior. Father, we ask that you would speak to each and every one of us today through your word. Amen. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Sir uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's famous character, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, you may know from the movies or the shows or the stories, is a master detective. And oftentimes the stories begin with Sherlock in his apartment late at night and somebody knocks on the door and a stranger will come in uh, and before they say anything, Sherlock will tell them where they've come from, how they've come, how long it's taken, and possibly what they've had for lunch. All of this before they say a word. And so inevitably the stranger looks at Sherlock, the master detective, and, and, and is puzzled by how he could possibly know all of these things. And then, of course, Sherlock proceeds to explain. Uh, it's through very careful observation and deduction of, from what he sees that he's able to isolate these facts about the person. He's able to see what others aren't able to see because he's a shrewd reasoner and he's observant. Now, when it comes to seeing things properly in the spiritual realm, the crucial thing is not being a shrewd reasoner or having incisive observational powers. The crucial thing is to have humility. Those who acknowledge that they can't see are the ones to whom Jesus gives sight. And those who are spiritually proud and say, I can see, I need no help, those are the ones who remain blind. If we want to see the truth about ourselves and God and Christ, what we need is humility. What we need is to recognize our blindness and to say, Lord, help me to see. And the promise of this passage is that all those who come to Christ acknowledging their need will find sight from him. That's the central thrust of John chapter 9. And the story begins with Jesus and his disciples walking one day and they see a man who has been blind from birth. The disciples of Jesus want to know uh, what specific sin has this man committed or ha- has his parents committed that, he's, that he was born blind. The assumption is There's some sin that must have been committed because of this terrible tragedy that has taken place. Well, Jesus clarifies that uh, actually, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Their assumption was uh, faulty. Uh, There wasn't some specific sin that led to this. This is is an important point to recognize. Because many times, uh, people will assume that they are suffering because they have committed some specific sin. Now, it's possible that's the case. But often it is not the case. Uh, We need to recognize that in a general sense, it is true that we suffer because of human sin. Our first father, Adam, rebelled against the Creator. And as a result, uh, human life was plunged into ruin and destruction and misery. And much of the heartache that we experience in life is the result of man's rebellion against the Creator. So in that general sense, it is true that man's rebellion against God brought misery. But we should not be too quick To infer that this specific misery or suffering is the result of this specific sin that I've committed. Frequently, it isn't. Sometimes it is. If you rob a bank, get caught, and go to jail, well, there's a clear cause and effect relationship between your sin and your punishment. So sometimes, admittedly, it's there. But not always. Sometimes our suffering is a mystery. God doesn't tell us why exactly he has brought about this affliction that we are facing. Uh, we don't know the reason. Thankfully, he has a reason. He knows the reason. It's a good reason. Uh, everything that God does is wise and good and right. And so we trust him even when we don't understand specifically what he is up to in our lives. This, I take it, is one of the central themes in the book of Job. Job is never told why his life is falling apart or has fallen apart. What God does is he simply displays his glory to Job, displays his majesty. And says, in effect, that's enough for you, Job. This is who I am. I am God. And that's the final answer to suffering. You may not know specifically why, but I am good and strong and wise. And you can trust my purposes, so will you trust me? That same question is addressed to us this morning if we face affliction. Do you trust God? Even if you don't know the reason why, do you trust that God knows what is best for you? And are you resting in his plan and purpose for your life? So that isn't the reason, says Jesus. It's not because of some specific sin. His congenital blindness, lifelong blindness, exists so that God's glory would be revealed, verse 3, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This, in other words, is an occasion for the power and goodness and wisdom of God to be displayed to others. That's a perspective on suffering that we often lack. Uh, Often we are interested in how, Lord, can I endure this? How can I get through this? And that's certainly legitimate. We seek grace to endure. Uh, But what we ought to seek is we ought to seek also that God would be glorified or honored even through our affliction. Uh, We ought to pray, Lord, use this trial in in my life to reveal your goodness and power to my children, my spouse, my neighbor. Uh, those, those who are around me. Suffering can be an opportunity for the power of God and the goodness of God to be displayed to those who are around us. It's not just about enduring. It's about glorifying God even in the midst of our affliction and pain. Now, I don't mean to speak glibly or lightly about suffering. As C.S. Lewis says in his book Paralondra, uh, there are some horrors in this world that a man would gladly saw off his right hand to avoid. And it's true. Uh, we don't want to ever speak in a glib way about suffering and pain. But we do want to recognize that affliction presents a unique opportunity for the character of God to be displayed to others. It's one thing in prosperity to say, Oh, God is my deepest joy. Jesus is my deepest joy. He is my treasure. That's good. and That's right. But when everything around you is crumbling, and life is hard, and you are still rejoicing because of what jesus christ has done for you you are communicating to the people around you this is how good and great jesus is he truly is more satisfying than anything else and so it is in affliction where we face one of life's great opportunities to honor god that's certainly the case here jesus says that this blindness will result in god's god's glory being displayed Verse 4, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Day here refers to the remainder of Jesus' earthly ministry. Night is coming. It's a reference to his passion, to his crucifixion, when no one's going to work. But while he's on earth, he has come to reveal the character of God. He is, as he says, the light of the world. He is the one through whom God's character is revealed and revealed through his actions. And so this presents an opportunity for him to reveal God to the people around him through this miracle. So he says these things, and then he proceeds to smear mud on the man's eyes. He tells him to go and wash, and the man does, and he comes back seeing. This man for whom the whole world has been just darkness from birth, all of a sudden is able to see trees and people and faces, and he comes back to his hometown, and his neighbors can't believe it. Some of them are having a hard time fitting this awkward fact into what they know. And they know that blind people who are blind from birth don't see. That's a given. So what do they make of this? Well, some of them suggest that this, this man only looks like the man who was blind from birth. Others, however, say, no, no, this is, this is the person. He's been healed somehow. So they take him to the religious authorities, the Pharisees, for the first round of questioning. So they don't quite know what to make of this. So naturally they take this man, to the religious authorities to get their assessment. And the Pharisees, these men who are learned in the scriptures, they ask the man, okay, how did it happen? And he says, okay, well, he made, he spit on the ground, made uh, mud, put it on my eyes, I went, I listened, and now I see. Now, intriguingly, some of these learned men, some of these Pharisees, immediately conclude that this man is a sinner. You would think that there would be some pause some quiet reflection wait a minute this man has been blind from birth and now he sees because of this individual who has healed him what's going on but instead instead of that pondering instead of that reflection they respond swiftly with the verdict this man is not from god for he does not keep the sabbath that's their judgment he's a sinner uh, we recognize that Scripture required Sabbath observance from God's, from God's people. God did say that uh, one day every week, God's people would have to abstain from work uh, and worship Him and have a day of rest. But the thing about His Sabbath command is it didn't give you all kinds of specific rules and regulations about what did and did not constitute work. The Pharisees, however, took it upon themselves to develop these, uh, this detailed explanation of what was and what was not work. Uh, And they constituted that making mud on the Sabbath, mixing water with dirt to produce mud, was work. You couldn't do it. Breach of the Sabbath. If you did it, you were a sinner. Also, performing miracles on the Sabbath, unless it was to save a life, work. Wait to perform the miracle uh, till the next day, till Sunday or Monday, not on the Sabbath. Well, this is far more detailed uh, than God's command to his people had ever been. But it's this, uh, it's this legalism, this multiplication of laws and regulations that God didn't require that causes them to see the truth in front of them. Just like in John chapter 5. Instead of being astonished by the work of Christ and saying, wow, a man, from, a man who was blind from birth can now see, they say, no, we know, about, we know all about Jesus. He's a sinner because he violated the Sabbath. Just as violating God's commands is obviously destructive, so also requiring things of oneself and others that God doesn't require can be destructive, can cause you not to see the truth in front of you. We need to be very wary when someone comes to us and says, God requires all of these things from you. Does he? Uh, What does the Bible say? Does the Bible tell me that God requires these things of me, or are are you just saying that out of a sort of misguided zeal? And often the way it happens is just like the way it happens with the the Pharisees. You start with a general principle that you know is biblical, observe the Sabbath, and then you start to create all kinds of specific guidelines about how that principle should be observed. You start to say, okay, here's the principle, and here is the only way to observe that principle. And any other way of observing it is wrong. This is the only way. That's often the slippery slope into legalism, and we need to be wary of that in ourselves and in others. Keeps people from seeing the truth about God, as in the case of the Pharisees. Other Pharisees, though, aren't convinced. They say, think about this. He's blind from birth. He must be from God. God wouldn't have listened to him if he was just a sinner. What do you make of their reasoning? Good reasoning? Bad reasoning? Now, there's, a, there's an element of truth to it. This is a pretty spectacular miracle. Uh, But in Scripture, we are taught that even if someone performs a great miracle, you are to evaluate that person based on God's word, not the miracle. So if somebody performs a miracle and then says something contrary to Scripture, you reject that person as a false prophet because God's word is finally what counts. So here, they might be giving a priority to miracles that Scripture doesn't. In any case, regardless of how well or poorly they reason, they come to the right conclusion. This person is from God. So they're disagreeing amongst themselves. Now at this point, uh, the Pharisees don't believe the man. So they invite his parents to come and give testimony. And they say, "Uh, is this your son? Yes. Was he blind from birth? Yes, he was. "Uh, How has he come to see? And intriguingly, the parents don't want to answer that question because they know what the religious leaders have decided. Anybody who says Jesus is the Christ is getting kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, Roughly speaking, this would have been equivalent to the local church. This is your religious community. These are your people. Notice the irony. Anybody who identifies Jesus as the Messiah, which he is, is out. Is out from among God's people. And so they know this, and they say, don't ask us, ask our son. He is of age. So again, they, they bring him back for a second round of questioning. Uh. They say, give glory to God. The idea here is tell the truth. The assumption is that he has, he has left out some detail that might incriminate Jesus because they're convinced that he's a sinner by this point. Somehow the division among the Pharisees has been resolved, and now all of them conclude he's a sinner. Uh, and so they say, okay, well, tell us the whole truth. What are you leaving out? We know he's a sinner. What, what detail are you leaving out that might incriminate him? The man says humbly, look, I don't, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. Like, I don't know about your little rules and regulations about what constitutes Sabbath observance or not. I do know this. I was blind and now I see. I can tell you that much. Hmm. This doesn't help. This is not, this is not the satisfying conclusion they were hoping for. So they want to rehearse the facts again. Okay, tell us again how did he do this? At this point, I don't know, the man's. I assume he was very enthusiastic about sharing what had happened to him up to this point, going around telling everybody what Jesus had done for him. His enthusiasm may well have been waning at this point as he keeps getting uh, pestered with questions. How did he do it? The man responds by saying, look, I already told you how he did it, and you didn't believe me. Are you interested in becoming followers of Jesus as well? Are you interested in becoming his disciples? Now, this infuriates them. We're told that they revile him. We are followers of Moses, but as for this Jesus, we don't know where he's come from. Uh, we don't know what his religious credentials are. And so uh, the man retorts by saying, look, you, you don't know where he comes from, but look at what he's done. Never since the foundation of the world has, has it been heard that someone who was born blind can see. If he weren't from God, if he weren't from God, he couldn't do this. And the irony is the man sees a lot more clearly than the religious li- uh, leaders who claim to see. We know Moses. We are his followers. There's a confidence that they can see things clearly. And the irony is they can't. They're blind. They're blind, but they don't know it. And they respond in verse 34, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? Notice again that that pride. We are the scholars. We are the theologians. We are the ones with answers, and you're going to teach us? Expelled from the synagogue. You're, you're out. Notice again this robust confidence that they can see clearly, that they know the answers, even as they are spiritually blind. So the man is expelled from the synagogue uh, as a result of standing up for Jesus and confessing him to be the one who was sent from God. In one moment, he loses his community, he re- re- loses his religious community, and he's isolated. And This is not the first Or the last time that we see people who publicly profess faith in Jesus Christ suddenly cut off from their community, ostracized. Uh, It's sometimes suggested that if you believe in Jesus and confess him as your Lord, life will get easier. Well, from one vantage point, it's true. like You will be reconciled to God, experience peace with God. So that that much is true. But if we mean that that your immediate circumstances are going to get easier, then in many cases it's simply false. Many people who put their faith in Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord uh, experience opposition. Uh, Many of those relationships that they had counted on over the course of their whole life suddenly disappear. They find themselves alone, unsettled, and life becomes more difficult, not less. And we need to recognize that. Following Jesus comes often at a high cost. Jesus tells us as much. But the truth of the matter is that whatever we lose in the course of following our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't compare to knowing him. Knowing Jesus is an infinitely greater and better thing than whatever losses we might endure along the way. To have Jesus Christ is to have life. There is nothing better in this world than to know Jesus as your savior and king and to walk in close fellowship with him. He satisfies our hearts more than money ever could, more than relationships and influence ever could. He is a far greater treasure than any of the things that we might have lost for his sake. As uh, Thomas Akempis puts it, What can the world offer without Jesus? To be without Jesus is hell most grievous. To be with Jesus is to know the sweetness of heaven. If Jesus is with you, no enemy can harm you. Whoever finds Jesus finds a rich treasure and a good above every good. He who loses Jesus loses much indeed and more than the whole world poorest of all is he who lives without Jesus, and richest of all is he who stands in favor with Jesus. The best thing that Jesus could ever give you, I should say, is himself. So, the man is expelled from the synagogue. Jesus intriguingly hears about this, and finds the man and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, In response, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Verse 37. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Notice that at this point in the story, the blind man also recovers his spiritual sight. Not only does he see clearly physically, but now he sees clearly spiritually. He recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, the one that God has sent into the world, and he bows down in honor of Christ. Jesus comments on this whole episode, the healing of the man and the hardness of the Pharisees in verse 39, and says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now when Jesus says, when he speaks of those who do not see that they may see, he's talking about those who are spiritually blind and recognize themselves to be such. These are the people who say, God, I can't distinguish between truth and error when it comes to spiritual matters. I can't assess my own condition. I can't see the truth about Christ clearly. I'm lost. I'm a mess. I'm helpless. Jesus, if you don't open my eyes to see, I'm going to remain blind. And Jesus says, those are the people that came into the world to give sight to. Anybody who in humility says, Jesus, I can't see. I'm going to open their eyes and enable them to see the truth that they might have life. Anybody who despairs of themselves, comes to the end of themselves and says, Lord, give me light, will receive it. He has come into the world that the blind, those who recognize themselves as blind, will see. But on the other hand, he has come into the world that those who see may become blind. And Jesus doesn't here mean that he's come into the world to take away spiritual sight from people. Right? They see things clearly and he's come to make them blind. That's not at all what he means. He is talking about those who are blind but claim to see. These are people who are spiritually blind. They don't see the truth about themselves or Jesus. But they're self-deceived and they say, no, we get it. We have the answers. If you want to see what that looks like, look at the Pharisees in this passage. We have the answers. We know who Moses was. We are disciples of Moses. We can assess this situation confidently because we have the answers. We have no need for light from above and that kind of spiritual pride says jesus will result in a person's remaining blind they will be confirmed in that state of blindness well the pharisees hear this and they say are we also blind notice Jesus' response in verse 41 if you were blind you would have no guilt that's a strange statement what does he mean He's saying that if you recognize yourself as blind, then in your helplessness you would come to me and I would give you sight and you would believe and your guilt would be taken away. If you would just humbly admit the truth to yourselves that you are spiritually blind, I would help you and your guilt guilt would be taken away. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You're confident that you know that you have the answers that you're the Bible expert men, but in fact you're far from God. And your prideful refusal to acknowledge your spiritual poverty means that you are uh, in the grip of blindness forever, until such time as you humble yourselves. First thing that we notice from this passage is that all those who come to Jesus with poverty of spirit and acknowledge, Lord, I'm helpless. I can't see. I don't know my own sinfulness. I can't see the glory of God shining in you. Would you be merciful to me and open my eyes? Jesus says, yes. If your eyes are closed to spiritual truth today, Jesus is inviting you to come to him today with your blindness and say, Lord, open my eyes so I can see what other people have seen. So I can see in you the glory of God, the savior of sinners. Open my eyes. Uh, A few years ago, I read this biography on Napoleon Bonaparte. Not incidentally, a great model of humility, Uh, Anyway, uh, Napoleon was the great 19th century French general, even emperor of France. And uh, uh, what struck me at one point as I was reading this biography is is that he would gather together these prominent judges and lawyers uh, in France for the purpose of uh, reconfiguring the French legal code, uh, addressing some of the problems that were there. And uh, the biographer notes that Napoleon was ready to ask Uh, any kind of question that he may have had about the law, even if it made him look silly, even if it was the sort of question that somebody who was completely ignorant of the law would ask, he didn't care. He wanted answers. So he would stand before these prominent judges and lawyers, and he would ask anything that came to his mind. He didn't care what they thought of him. He cared about the right answer. I guess that struck me because that's so uncharacteristic of human beings. Uh, More often than not, we do the reverse of that. If you're at some sort of meeting at work, and you realize you don't know something that everybody else in that meeting knows, most of us don't raise their hand and go, hey, I don't, I don't have a clue. Well, like this thing you guys are talking about, I don't get it. Can somebody explain that to me? It takes a lot of humility to do that. Most of us don't do that. We wait quietly for the thing to pass, the thing that we don't know about, uh, so we can pipe up about the thing we do know about. Then we might just go to our office and look, you know, Google it in private. Uh, and we do that because we don't want anybody to know that we're dumb or ignorant, that we don't have the answers. Well, Jesus is saying that in the spiritual realm, if you want to see, the first thing you have to do is to raise up your hand and say, I don't see. I don't have answers. I need God to shine his light on me so that I can see my need and to see Christ. Humility is necessary if we are going to have spiritual insight. Jesus says all those who come and ask for sight will be granted sight. It's an encouragement also for those of you who are trusting in Jesus He's the one who gives light. Life is complicated. So often we are faced with dilemmas that we don't know the answer to. Pray that he would open your eyes to see what he wants you to do. Pray that he would open your eyes to see more and more of who he is and what he's done for you. It's the first thing we see. If we ask in humility for sight, we will receive it. On the other hand, if we assume we see and have all the answers and are confident and don't ask, we will remain blind. Those who, like the Pharisees, say, we we know, thank you very much, what's going on here. We have come to our conclusions, and we are confident in our assessment. Those people remain blind. And think about the tragic irony of this whole situation. God incarnate is in front of them. His glory shines brightly in Jesus Christ, but they can't see. Their eyes, spiritually speaking, are closed shut, and they refuse to ask that they might be open to see God's final revelation of himself in Jesus there are, roughly speaking, two groups or categories of people that are likely to be self-deceived like the Pharisees when it comes to their, their own spiritual condition and blindness. First category, we might say this, this would be the wise person. Uh, this is the person who has made maybe good decisions in life. They're successful. They're financially prosperous. Maybe they've got a socially prominent position. They're well-respected in the community. And because they've had uh, the wisdom in practical matters, and because they've experienced a certain level of success in life, they have an overinflated sense of their own abilities. They feel that they're sort of the cleverest person in the room. They wouldn't say that; wouldn't maybe even admit it to themselves. But they have this robust confidence in their own judgment. They know how to get things done. They're successful. Uh, and if you are successful, praise God for that. That's that's a that's a mercy. But recognize that all of the. Uh, wisdom that you've exhibited to achieve earthly success doesn't contribute anything to spiritual sight. You can be very successful from a worldly standpoint and utterly blind spiritually. Just because you know how to make money or achieve power and influence doesn't mean that you see anything clearly when it comes to Christ and your spiritual need. So don't be self-deceived. As a subset of the wise person, we, we could also mention the intellectual. This is a person who's not necessarily... Successful from in terms of making money, and prominent. But this is the person who's read a lot of books and knows a lot of answers. Person who's clever. Uh, it's easy for it's easy for the intellectual to to be like the Pharisees and to feel like I have the answers. I've thought about this. I've assessed it. I've reasoned. I know the answers. And they may know a lot of things, but they ought not to confuse knowledge with spiritual insight. Those are not the same thing. You can you can be very learned, and be also at the same time spiritually blind, and not see your need, and not understand anything about Jesus Christ. And that should drive you to ask Jesus to give you sight. As Charles Spurgeon writes, It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. This sense that we are strong and perceptive people is a spiritual liability. That's why scripture says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 26.12 So one category, the wise wise person. Second category, the moral person. This is a person who takes pride in the fact that they're basically a good person. They've, They've sought to do the right things in life. And while they might need forgiveness for this or that, they're basically fine. They don't see their spiritual poverty. They don't recognize that all of the things that they take pride in, all of the good things that they have done, are garbage in the sight of God in terms of making them acceptable before the Lord. All of the things that fuels their identity as a good person can contribute nothing to their salvation, nothing to a right standing with God. In fact, they're offended when you tell them that all of the good things that you take pride in that cause you to feel that you're a great person, none of those things can make you right with God. Indeed, if you are looking at some good thing you've done and trusting that God will accept you because of that good thing, that good thing is actually an act of evil. You you, you are trusting in yourself to be your own savior rather than looking at the savior that God has actually provided in Jesus Christ. So one form of spiritual self-deception, one form of blindness, is the assumption that we are fundamentally good people and don't need a savior. If we want to see, we need to come to a place of helplessness where we say, Lord, I'm wretched. I can't make myself right in your sight. And my only hope is Jesus Christ. His righteousness, his perfect obedience counted to me is my only hope. The call to all of us this morning is to come to the end of ourselves. Ask Jesus to give us sight and trust that he will. And this morning, if you do see, you need to recognize that you were once like this blind man. You were born blind, not physically blind, but no one who is born into this world seeing. All of us are born with a hard and rebellious heart, with a lack of spiritual sight. If we see today, it's because Jesus, as it were, has smeared mud on our eyes and has given us sight to see. We see because of the miracle that he's performed in our life. And the result is that it should humble us. Think about how inappropriate it would have been for this blind man to go back to his village and start to look down on the other blind. Right, now I see and they don't. Thoroughly inappropriate. He has sight, not because of anything in him, but because of the mercy of Christ. If you see today, it's not because you're a clever or wise person, it's because Jesus has granted you sight. And that should make you characteristically humble when you deal with people. If you see things that they don't, It's not because you're clever, it's because Jesus is a great savior. Give him thanks. We need to identify ourselves with this blind man whom Jesus makes whole and respond with humility and gratitude all the days of our lives. May Jesus help us to do that more and more. Let's pray together.